0: If you'd like one, please send a letter with $3 worth of stamps in an envelope to P.O. Box 82146 Highland Park, Howick, Auckland or you can phone 092713377 Buddhist Youth Association, Respectful, Beneficial, Empowering Hello and welcome. I hope your week passed with little disturbance or pain and your mind is peaceful and happy. Last week we started going through the text Eight Points of Mind Training by the Tibetan Buddhist Master Langri Tampa. Remember we said that mind training teachings are fundamental to Buddhism and so following a text like this is very useful in our spiritual path. Just to remind us of what we're talking about, here is Langri Tampa's text again. Determined to obtain the greatest possible benefit for all sentient beings who are more precious than a wish-fulfilling jewel, I shall hold them most dear at all times. When in the company of others, I shall always consider myself the lowest of all, and from the depths of my heart hold others dear and supreme. Vigilant, the moment a delusion appears in my mind, endangering myself and others, I shall confront and avert it without delay. Now last week we took the first verse as our focus, and talked about the kindness of others, and why the text describes them as more precious than a wish-fulfilling jewel. First, we saw that we have to rely on other beings to develop the qualities we need on the path to enlightenment. Two recent car accidents may give us some insight into this. I was involved in one of them, and someone I know in the other. They both provided a chance for us to observe and take care of our mind states, though I must admit, my experience was a lot easier than my friend's. In my accident, another friend and I were on the motorway, he was driving while I was in the passenger seat. The driver of another car changed lanes, not realizing how much a sudden build up of traffic had slowed pace on the motorway, and her car bounced off mine a couple of times on the passenger side. Luckily no one was hurt, but the insurance decided that my car was a write off, so I was paid out a handy sum of money and with a little extra added, was able to buy a much newer and better vehicle. Unfortunately, the lovely lady who caused the accident also badly damaged her car and I don't know how she's managing. In any case, we would normally look at an accident as a bit of a disaster, but due to the kindness of others, it has turned into a blessing for me. From the very helpful tow truck operator who gave us a lift into town, the sympathetic policeman who attended the accident, the understanding and professional insurance people, to the cheerful salesman, Keen to sell me in the new vehicle at the car yard, everyone made what could have been a pretty nasty experience into its opposite. Even the lady driver who caused the accident through her concerned and contrite attitude was very kind. It just goes to show that whatever situation we find ourselves in, we are dependent on the kindness of others. You could, of course, argue that not all such situations turn out so well. My friend's car was stationary when another driver hit it and drove away without leaving any details. Fortunately, a bystander saw the whole incident and managed to get the number plate of the offending car. My friend traced the driver to a nearby workplace where the driver admitted his guilt and gave my friend his contact details, address, phone number and so on. But they all turned out to be false. Then using the number plate of the car... My friend was able to get the right address, and when I last spoke to him, he was about to go and talk to the driver again. So maybe that will not have as nice an outcome as I had, but what a great opportunity for my friend to practice patience, compassion and tolerance. Can you see that he has a much better chance to enhance his positive qualities and weaken the negative qualities than I had? The incident that damaged his car will in one way or the other soon be resolved and after a while it will mostly be forgotten. However, the way that he deals with it will continue to influence his mind and if he he perseveres with being positive and compassionate even though he may have to take some strong action the benefit could be long-lasting. A lot of suffering can then be avoided both for himself and for the other driver. And all this has been made possible because of the negative attitude of the other driver, who is, after all, just a fellow living being who doesn't know how to cause happiness. But not only do we need others to develop the qualities of enlightenment, we actually cannot do without them in our everyday lives either. Now think of any piece of clothing you are wearing at the moment and mentally trace its history. Remember the store you got it from and its salespeople. Without them you couldn't have bought it. Then go back to the factory where it was created by someone sitting behind a sewing machine. Both the salespeople and the factory workers couldn't exist without the food they ate, their loved ones, their shelter and so on. So the article of clothing is linked to all those elements and the beings involved in providing them. Go further back to the making of the material and we find more people involved. And going even further back to the raw materials and their processing, the number increases even further. If we continue this trip further back in time, we will find a vast net of interconnected beings and events. Leave even one out, and the article of clothing as you know it could not exist. So you can see how a single article of clothing is actually a representation of all the kindness of the beings in the whole universe. But we can do this mind experiment not only with shirts and skirts, we can do it with anything at all and we'll find that everything in our experience and particularly everything we enjoy depends on the existence and activities of multitudes of other beings, human or non-human. In fact, we cannot exclude a single being or thing saying, this has absolutely no connection to the making of my shirt. Look carefully enough and in some way Maybe very indirectly, you will find a connection. And that's why other beings are so very precious. In so many ways, we are totally supported by them and would be soon lost without them. 1985 seems a long time ago to me now, but it was the year of the New Zealand movie The Quiet Earth in which Bruno Lawrence finds himself as one of the only three survivors on a post-apocalyptic Earth. In the beginning of the movie... He thinks he's the only person left alive and over time it almost drives him insane to the point where he's about to kill himself. Well, imagine yourself as the only survivor on earth, nobody else around at all. Even if there was enough food and water, how long do you think you will last? I think most of us would not last too long. Not only do we need others for our material necessities, They are essential to our mental and emotional well-being as well, well, for most of us anyway. Lots of experiments were conducted, particularly in the middle of the last century, on the effects of isolation and sensory deprivation. No doubt some of you will know about these experiments and the results. In May last year, an article called How Extreme Isolation Warps the Mind that Michael Bond wrote for the BBC started off like this. Sarah Shord's mind began to slip after about two months into her incarceration. She heard phantom footsteps and saw flashing lights and spent most of her day crouched on all fours, listening through a gap in the door. That summer, the 32-year-old had been hiking with two friends in the mountains of Iraqi Kurdistan when they were arrested by Iranian troops after straying onto the border with Iran. Accused of spying, they were kept in solitary confinement in Evan Prison in Tehran, each in their own tiny cell. She endured almost 10,000 hours with little human contact before she was freed. One of the most disturbing effects was the hallucinations. In the periphery of my vision, I began to see flashing lights, only to jerk my head around to find that nothing was there, she wrote in the New York Times in 2011. At one point I heard someone screaming and it wasn't until I felt the hands of one of the friendlier guards on my face trying to revive me that I realized the screams were my own. The article goes on, We all want to be alone from time to time to escape the demands of our colleagues or the hassle of crowds. But not alone alone. For most people, prolonged social isolation is all bad, particularly mentally, we know this not only from reports by people like Shored, who have di- experienced it firsthand, but also from psychological experiments on the effects of isolation and sensory deprivation, some of which had to be called off due to the extreme and bizarre reactions of those involved. Why does the mind unravel so spectacularly when we are truly on our own, and is there any way to stop it? We've known for a while. That isolation is physically bad for us chronically lonely people have higher blood pressure are more vulnerable to infection and are also more likely to develop Alzheimer's disease and dementia loneliness also interferes with a whole range of everyday functioning such as sleep patterns attention and logical and verbal reasoning the mechanisms behind these effects are still unclear though what is known is that social isolation unleashes an extreme immune response, a cascade of stress hormones and inflammation. And this may have been appropriate in our early ancestors, when being isolated from the group carried big physical risks, but for us, the outcome is mostly harmful. Yet some of the most profound effects of loneliness are on the mind. For starters, isolation messes with our sense of time, One of the strangest effects is the time-shifting reported by those who have spent long periods living underground without daylight. In 1961, French geologist Michel Seffray led a two-week expedition to study an underground glacier beneath the French Alps and ended up staying two months, fascinated by how the darkness affected human biology. He decided to abandon his watch and live like an animal. While conducting tests with his team on the surface, they discovered it took him five minutes to count to what he thought was 120 seconds. A similar pattern of slowing time was reported by Maurizio Matalbini, a sociologist and caving enthusiast. In 1993, Matalbini spent 366 days in an underground cavern near Pissarro in Italy that had been designed with NASA to simulate space missions breaking his own world record for time spent underground. When he emerged, he was convinced only 219 days had passed. His sleep-wake cycles had almost doubled in length. Since then, researchers have found that in darkness, most people eventually adjust to a 48-hour cycle, 36 hours of activity followed by 12 hours of sleep. The reasons are still unclear. Both Sifre and Montalbany had periods of mental instability as well, though the article goes on to say that these were nothing when compared to what happened to people involved in the kinds of sensory deprivation experiments I mentioned earlier. It mentions that during the Korean War of the 1950s and 60s, based on the techniques of solitary confinement, the Chinese were brainwashing captured Americans. Following the Chinese, the governments and institutions of the US and Canada decided to set up their own sensory deprivation research projects. And so, according to the article, the most extensive took place at McGill University Medical Center in Montreal, led by the psychologist Donald Hebb. The McGill researchers invited paid volunteers, that was mainly college students, to spend days or weeks by themselves in soundproof cubicles, deprived of meaningful human contact. Their aim was to reduce perceptual stimulation to a minimum to see how their subjects would behave when almost nothing was happening. They minimized what the students could feel, see, hear and touch, fitting them with translucent visors, cotton gloves and cardboard cuffs extending beyond the fingertips. As Scientific American magazine reported at the time, they had them lie on U-shaped foam pillows to restrict noise and set up a continuous hum of air-conditioning units to mask small sounds. After only a few hours, the students became acutely restless. They started to crave stimulation, talking, singing, or reciting poetry to themselves to break the monotony. Later, many of them became anxious or highly emotional. Their mental performance suffered too, struggling with arithmetic and word-association tests. But the most alarming effects were the hallucinations. They would start with points of light, lines or shapes, eventually evolving into bizarre scenes, such as squirrels marching with sacks over their shoulders or processions of eyeglasses filing down a street. They had no control over what they saw. One man saw only dogs, another babies. Some of them experienced sound hallucinations as well, a music box or a choir, for instance. Others imagined sensations of touch. One man had the sense he'd been hit in the arm by pellets fired from guns. Another, reaching out to touch a doorknob, felt an electric shock. When they emerged from the experiment, they found it hard to shake this altered state of reality, convinced that the whole room was in motion or that objects were constantly changing shape and size. The research was said to last several weeks, but it ended after only seven days. The longest any of the subjects could bear it. Hebb wrote in the journal American Psychologist that their results were very unsettling to us. It is one thing to hear that the Chinese are brainwashing their prisoners on the other side of the world. It is another to find in your own laboratory that merely taking away the usual sights, sounds, and bodily contacts from a healthy university student for a few days can shake him right down to the base. The experiment was repeated in 2008 when the psychologist Ian Robbins and the BBC Horizon programme isolated six volunteers for 48 hours in soundproof rooms in what used to be a nuclear bunker. The article goes on to say the volunteers suffered anxiety extreme emotions, paranoia, and significant deterioration in their mental functioning. They also hallucinated. A heap of 5,000 empty oyster shells, a snake, zebras, tiny cars, the room taking off, mosquitoes, fighter planes buzzing around. Why does the perceptually deprived brain play such tricks, asks Bond's article, and answers by saying that when the usual bombardment of information from visual, auditory and environmental cues dries up, and I quote, the various nerve systems feeding into the brain's central processor are still firing off, but in a way that doesn't make sense. So after a while, the brain starts to make sense of them, to make them into a pattern. That quote is from Ian Robbins, the psychologist who ran the experiment. Essentially, what the brain is doing is using the little random information it has to create a reality, but not one in line with anything we know. In other words, a fantasy world. Such mental failures should perhaps not surprise us, writes Michael Bond. For one thing, we know that other primates do not fare well in isolation. One of the most graphic examples is psychologist Harry Harlow's experiments on rhesus macaque monkeys, at the University of Wisconsin-Madison during the 1960s, in which he deprived them of social contact after birth for months or years. They became, he observed, enormously disturbed even after 30 days and after a year were obliterated socially, incapable of interaction of any kind. The article compares that with children rescued from Romanian orphanages in the early 1990s who, and I quote, after being almost entirely deprived of close social contact since birth, grew up with serious behavioural and attachment issues. Now the next point the article makes is even more relevant to what we've been saying about the preciousness of others. It points out that we, and again I quote, derive meaning from our emotional states largely through contact with others. Biologists believe that human emotions evolved because they aided cooperation among our early ancestors who benefited from living in groups. Their primary function is social. With no one to mediate our feelings of fear, anger, anxiety and sadness and help us determine their appropriateness, before long they deliver us a distorted sense of self, a perceptual fracturing or a profound irrationality. It seems that left too much to ourselves the very system that regulates our social living can overwhelm us. The article then uses as an example the twenty-five thousand prisoners currently held in super maximum security prisons in the United States. Bond writes, "Without social interaction, supermax prisoners have no way to test the appropriateness of their emotions or their fantastical thinking," says Terry Cooper's a forensic psychiatrist at the Wright Institute in Berkeley, California, who has interviewed thousands of Supermax prisoners. This is one of the reasons many suffer anxiety, paranoia and obsessive thoughts. Craig Hanny, a psychologist at the University of California, Santa Cruz, and a leading authority on the mental health of inmates in the U.S., believes that some of them purposefully initiate brutal confrontations with prison staff just to reaffirm their own existence, to remember who they are. In general, it's pretty obvious that social isolation has a great potential to create severe mental and emotional problems, though Bond points out that much depends on the individual. He writes, When Shord was imprisoned in Iran, she was arguably amongst the least equipped people to cope because her incarceration came out of the blue. People in her circumstances have their world suddenly inverted and there's nothing in the manner of their taking, no narrative of sacrifice or enduring for a greater good to help them derive meaning from it. They must somehow find meaning in their predicament or mentally detach themselves from their day-to-day reality, which is a monumental task when alone. Hussain al-Shaharistani managed it. He was Saddam Hussein's chief nuclear advisor before he was tortured and shut away in Abu Ghraib prison near Baghdad after refusing on moral grounds to cooperate on the development of an atomic weapon. He kept his sanity during ten years of solitary confinement by taking refuge in a world of abstractions, making up mathematical problems which he then tried to solve. He is now Deputy Energy Minister of Iraq. Edith Bone, a medical academic and translator, followed a similar strategy during the seven years she spent imprisoned by the Hungarian Communist government after World War II, constructing an abacus out of stale bread and counting out an inventory of her vocabulary in the six languages she spoke fluently. It seems it may be easier to cope if you have a military background. Karen Fletcher, a psychiatrist who has helped debrief and treat hostages, went through mock detention and interrogation exercises while in the Royal Air Force as a preparation for being captured. They teach you the basis of coping, he says. Also, you know your buddies will be busting a gut to get you back in one piece. I think the military are less likely to feel helpless or hopeless. Hopelessness and helplessness are horrible things to live with and they erode morale and coping ability. Of the two years in isolation, he spent as a POW in the Vietnam War, Senator John McCain, who was beaten for the U.S. presidency by Barack Obama, said, It's an awful thing, solitary. It crushes your spirit and weakens your resistance more effectively than any other form of mistreatment. The onset of despair is immediate, and it's a formidable foe. Still, he was able to resist his interrogators for five and a half years that he was in their hands. What message can we take from these stories of endurance and despair, asks Bond at the end of the article. The obvious one is that we are, as a rule, considerably diminished when disengaged from others. Isolation may very often be the sum total of wretchedness, as the writer Thomas Carlyle put it. Bond concludes that it helps to be mentally prepared and resilient, but says we shouldn't underestimate the power of our imagination to knock over prison walls, penetrate icy caves, or provide make-believe companions to walk with us. So if we look deeply enough, we can see that in every way we are reliant on others. And if we act selfishly, not taking others into account, we shouldn't expect to experience happiness. In his commentary on this text, His Holiness the Dalai Lama explains that we don't have to think of it in religious terms at all leaving aside for the moment religion, the next life and nirvana, even within this life selfish people bring negative repercussions down upon themselves by their self-centered actions, he says. On the other hand, people like Mother Teresa who sincerely devote their entire life and energy to selflessly serving the poor, needy and helpless are always remembered for their noble work with respect. Others don't have anything negative to say about them. This then is the result of cherishing others. Whether you want it or not, even those who are not your relatives always like you, feel happy with you and have a warm feeling towards you. If you're the sort of person who always speaks nicely in front of others but bad mouths them behind their back, of course, nobody will like you. Thus, even in this life, if we try to help others as much as we can and have as few selfish thoughts as possible, we shall experience much happiness. Our life is not very long, 100 years at most. If throughout its duration we try to be kind, warm-hearted, concerned for the welfare of others and less selfish and angry, that will be wonderful, excellent. That really is the cause of happiness. If we are selfish, always putting ourselves first and others second, the actual result will be that we ourselves will finish, finish up last. Mentally putting ourselves last and others first is the way to come out ahead. So don't worry about the next life or Nirvana. These things will come gradually. If within this life you remain a good warm-hearted unselfish person you'll be a good citizen of the world. Whether you're a Buddhist a Christian or a communist is irrelevant. The important thing is that as long as you are a human being you should be a good human being. That is the teaching of Buddhism. That is the message carried by all the world's religions. However, the teachings of Buddhism contain every technique for eradicating selfishness and actualizing the attitude of cherishing others. Shanti Shantideva's marvelous text, The Vatara, that's the guide to the Bodhisattva's way of life, for example, is very helpful for this. His Holiness goes on, I myself practice according to that book. It is extremely useful. Our mind is very cunning, very difficult to control, but if we make constant effort, work tirelessly with logical reasoning and careful analysis, we shall be able to control it and change it for the better. He goes on, some Western psychologists say that we should not repress our anger, but express it, that we should practice anger. However, we must make an important distinction here between mental problems that should be expressed and those that should not. Sometimes, You may be truly wronged and it's right for you to express your grievance instead of letting it fester inside you, but you should not express it with anger. If you foster disturbing negative minds such as anger, they will become part of your personality. Each time you express anger, it becomes easier to express it again. You do it more and more until you are simply a furious person completely out of control. Thus, in terms of mental problems, there are certainly some that are properly expressed, but others that are not. And we're going to have to leave it there because that's all we have time for today. Thanks for joining us and I look forward to meeting you again next week. Please dedicate any positive potential from the program to the enlightenment of all beings. Thank you and goodbye. Thanks for listening to this Free FM podcast. If you want to hear more content like this, you can support Free FM via Patreon.